My name is Shane. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, and after smugly dodging it for three years, I got COVID for the first time last week. Um, I know, I thought I was Wolverine. Apparently, I'm not. And now I'm fine, other than this kind of like a three-second delay between any time I actually need to articulate a thought and that thought actually <laughs> coming. So uh, that's fun. So yeah, that's some people's world all the time, apparently. Um, so thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. We are in a little talkie series called Another Story, and this kind of originated from a chat I was having with my friend Frosty, when he was here last year, talking about um, one of the things that, for all of, <laughs> for all of his complex feelings about churches, <laughs> uh, one of the things he likes about them is that they are a chance to tell another story about what the world is and the way that world, the world works and who we are as people and what really matters. And um, considering um, the state of the world sometimes, I think we need new and old stories um, to give us hope and direction. And so that's one of the things that we've been doing during this series is looking at Jesus as a wisdom tradition, um, not just a set of be concrete beliefs or rational statements, but as a way of being in the world that we are invited to. Um, and we've been wrestling our way through that. And today we're talking about food, uh, partly because we were going to be having a community lunch today. Uh, but we also scheduled a community sing-along and we decided that was too much community for one day. People might try and form some kind of commune. So we scrapped that uh, and instead we're going to talk about food, uh, which is not as good as eating food, but, you know, we do what we can, don't we? But someone still brought cupcakes, so hooray! <laughs> There's going to be a fight to the death over six cupcakes. That'll be great. We'll, we'll, we'll find out who really is good at, like, conflict resolution and being Jesus-y and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you sit with the Gospels, you might not have dusted off your Bible in a century or so, but if you sit with the Gospels, there's food all throughout them. Um, eating and drinking happens uh, all of the time, and particularly looking at Jesus. Jesus is constantly eating and drinking. Um, he's always feasting. Um, at dinner parties, feeding others, eating with the wrong people, turning water into wine. Um, it's such a central theme that one of the things that comes up all the time is uh, people getting very upset that Jesus isn't fasting enough. Uh, because a lot of Jesus was once a follower of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's followers were um, very ascetic. Um, probably not very aesthetic, uh, but definitely very ascetic. Uh, and they loved a good roam around the desert and a lot of fasting. And Jesus um, was the opposite. And John's disciple was curiously engaged with him regularly about uh, his, his dining habits and why, if John was such a holy man who went around fasting all the time, uh, why Jesus was eating and drinking all the time. And then others had um, immense problems with who Jesus ate with. For Jesus, um, eating and drinking were a statement about the activity of God in the world. The vision of an immense banquet is one of his go-to ways of describing the kingdom. What happens when God shows up? We feast abundantly. That this is the center of life, that it is worth celebrating. I think for both Jesus and the gospel writers explaining him, 
doing the storytelling of what Jesus was about. A lot of this has to do with how political food is. I don't know if you think about food as being political, but who gets to eat? What they get to eat? How often they get to eat? And with who are all questions which reveal a lot about the kind of world that we are creating. I was listening to a podcast in the middle of the night, as is my custom, because sleep ain't good, um, about the Irish potato famine, about one million people out of the eight million population of Ireland at the time dying of starvation, about the English government shutting down food houses in an intentional act of elimination to engage a sense of survival of the fittest and get rid of some of the chaff from their kingdom. Food is incredibly political. We see in the wedding at Cana where Jesus does his first miracle in John by turning water into wine, that in Jesus' kingdom, meals are marked with abundance, with generosity, with more than enough. And the loaves and the fishes miracles, no one misses out. I'm not sure why they're the loaves and the fishes miracles, but it's just a hangover from Sunday school. They should probably be the loaves and fish, but it's always been fishes, and I'm a traditionalist in this one area, and I will not budge. <laughs> Everything else, a bit flimsy on, that's fine. These eating and drinking stories um, in the Gospels, they're not just quaint stories. They're not kind of like uh, proof that God exists stories because uh, they don't stand up very well these days. But they're better to be thought of as live-action theater or live-action role-playing, enacting the kingdom of God. What would it be like if God's kingdom was here now? As Jesus followers, if we think about how the tone of our spirituality might be outworked in our lives, it's worth thinking about how this is reflected in meals. The politics of eating and drinking were strictly enforced in Jesus' time, both because of how ritual purity functioned and because of their perceived power to transform behavior. Eating together creates bonds, which is one of the things that makes eating so dangerous. If you do it for too long, you might begin to believe that this person is one of your tribe, or their corruption might rub off on you. The fear was always that the good would be corrupted. In psychology, it's called negative domination theory, or negative dominance theory, which is this idea that negative traits can corrupt good traits. Um, one pill in a swimming pool, um, the whole swimming pool's ruined. <laughs> For some, anyway. Some don't mind so much. <laughs> Hot parenting tip. Um, the pool, the clean pool doesn't fix the dirty poo. It's the other way around. Uh, and if you would like, uh, I have one copy of my one of my favorite ever um, psych slash theology books called Unclean, which spends a lot of time looking into this um, phenomenon about the way in which we socialize negative dominance theory, in which um, we intrinsically think that it is the bad which always corrupts the good. 
Yet Jesus' practice is so often going in the other direction. One story we're presented is to carefully gatekeep our tables, lest we become corrupted, lest we encourage bad behavior, lest people think we're condoning certain behavior. Our tables should be used to freeze people out until they become more like us. In this story, we should only become close to those already in our tribe, already in our circle, because we're safe assuming that we're the goodies and everyone else is the baddies. But the narratives of Jesus challenge this. We're going to sit with two short stories of scandalous meals today. And both are marked with concern that Jesus is being too generous. So I'm going to read... Um, what are you going to read first? I'm going to read Matthew. This is told in a couple of the Gospels. Um, and one of the stories, it's Matthew. And the other story, it's Levi. Um, a chance it could be two different stories. A good chance Matthew and Levi are the same name for the same person, but we're going to stick with this one here. Um, would anyone like to read for us so we don't have to listen to my monotonous drone? Any readers? Thank you. Matthew 9, 10 to 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So worth framing here, we won't get too deep into the weeds, but sinners here has been used kind of as a sociological slash religious category. Um, it's as much about identifying a as a, a community and perceptions of a community as it is about particular behaviors or even status before God. But before we get in too deep with this story, I just want to take a moment to reflect about a radically generous meal that you've had. Um, I want you to take a moment to think back over your life about a meal that you have eaten that for some reason or another has felt radically generous. Um, it might be what you ate or who you ate it with or how it met a great need in you. And when I, ask, when I ask the question of what made it so generous, how did it make you feel, and what did it do in you? So I'll give you a moment to have a think, and then, if you'd like, you can share with the people at your tables in a moment about a radically generous meal that you've experienced. I know some of you get stage fright and go blank as soon as anyone asks you a question like this, so we'll give you a moment. <laughs> So, without digging into the details of the meals, um, I 
just want to reflect together about what, from your tables or from your experience, what a radically generous meal can do. How would you describe or how did someone describe at your table what a radically generous meal can do or make you feel? I think the words open and soft come to mind. Um, I was just sharing that I, my mum and I visited my sister who was working in East Timor many, many, many years ago and we arrived uh, and she was living with an East Timorese family and they were hosting a wedding when we got there and they didn't have much money but they um, got a couple of animals, they killed them and I'm a vegetarian by the way so that was all a bit confront and it was all being done there and they'd stayed up all night cooking for the wedding it was and no refrigeration so the timing of everything had to work out so that it would all be ready in time and uh, yeah it was just swept up in the um generosity and the um the inclusion even though we were the out outsider mum and I um yeah we were just wrapped up because we were Liesl's family and it was just like it was just like normal I guess so yeah the words open and soft come to mind that's lovely I hope they slayed a tofu chicken. I just think it creates a sense of um, deep belonging and community. Like you feel really um, included when someone cooks a meal for you and you're dining with people, um, and particularly people that you might not normally dine with. Like, um, yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Greg. Oh, when I was a young man, about 25, I was cycling. I had a bike, bought a bike in London, and I decided to cycle to Warsaw, and uh, as you do. And um, as I was in kind of like the corner of Belgium, uh, and I just I was only a couple of days in, um, I was just cycling past, and I just needed water, and there was a, a family having a, an outdoor lunch, and they invited me to join them. And they spoke French, and I didn't speak French. And then they got out the wine, and, and I was like, no, I don't drink wine. And then they got out mineral water. They wouldn't just give me water. They wanted to, have, they wanted to give me mineral water. And, and, um, and so I ate their cheese and grapes and all that kind of stuff. And um, interestingly enough, it made me feel like I was safe. And I somehow belonged. And this crazy trip across Europe actually wasn't a dangerous, ill-conceived plan. It was, in fact going to be okay I felt like I was it was approved of um, and so it just created a sense of it changed my headspace because uh, prior to that everyone was like dangerously foreign and after that I was like no there's opportunity here yeah that makes you think of this uh, William Dalrymple who's a historian who I deeply love um, was just talking during the time of Brexit around immigration and, and stuff in the UK. And uh, he, he was just talking about the ex, like that it used to be common practice for like 18, 19 year olds to do exactly this, just jump on a ship and a bike and a, some shoes and walk around and about experiencing hospitality everywhere, like everywhere you go. And now these same people who are in need in the case of refugees and migrants about how inhospitable <laughs> Britain as being when it's sent out its people for hospitality for so many years. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Okay. I think a common thread in the stories um, we were talking about and I heard um, was being seen 
people noticing that we liked falafels or recognizing that we need a quiet night in instead of a boisterous night out and um, and seeing our need and meeting it uh, and that being such a gift to be seen. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I think all of the reasons list listed in so many ways are some of the reasons why eating and drinking is dangerous. Um, particularly when you're talking about using community as a way of controlling other people's behaviour. Um, making people feel like they belong when they shouldn't belong is a dangerous thing to do. I'm not just saying dangerous bad, I'm saying dangerous good too. But I think that's one of the reasons there are such strong traditions around who you eat with. Safety. Again, we often read the Bible in our times not thinking about the fact that, you know, the police force or, <laughs> you know, that when you're out in the sticks and someone shows up to your door, that person could be safe or they could be dangerous. Mm. Jesus says this really curious little um, reference in there. Um, I have to go back. Um, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which seems very strange um, to pop up in the middle of the Gospels. But it's actually a quote from Hosea. Um, and it's actually Jesus, Jesus choosing a side in a very long-running debate around, um, around purity and inclusion and the sacrificial system and who belongs. And in the Hebrew Bible, you've kind of got this. This is a gross simplification of it, but you've kind of got the people on behalf of the temple and the temple, and the temple um, system and ritual purity and the priests um, who have got all the rules around who can eat with who and what will corrupt you and what will pollute you. Um, and then you've got the prophets um, who often end up critiquing this. Um, we'll take a little quote from Isaiah here. Um, Isaiah and Hosea and Micah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and uh, ranting prophets against um, all of these sacrifices happening but justice not happening. Um, as, if what, as if the center of, the spirit, of spirituality is... Um, the ways in which you observe the customs, um, yet ignoring the fact that people are hungry, um, that widows and orphans are being abused and overlooked. And this is Isaiah's rant. <laughs> is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God because, you know, that's what you do. Um, this is not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to un untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide poor, the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So all of this centers on this idea of like trying to work out, and particularly in the gospel times, they're trying to work out how to get rid of the Romans and how to get God to show up. And so one of the ideas about how to get God to show up is if we're just so pure and we keep Torah, we keep the law so accurately and do everything down to the finest millimeter, then God will be pleased with us and show up and free us from the Romans. Um, yet Jesus is quoting Isaiah and Hosea throughout his work saying, actually, if you want to see God showing up, um, you know, the streets can run with blood 
of animal sacrifice, but if people are hungry, this doesn't please God at all. Religious ritual or radical justice. Um, so Jesus is eating with tax collectors and other sinners, and again, I'm going to try not to talk too long, so we're not going to dig into these things, but just something to note is that even with the idea of justice, it's complicated. I don't want, don't want to defang the scandal here. Tax collectors were um, notorious for, they, they were Jews who worked on behalf of the Roman Empire, collecting taxes on the behalf of the Roman Empire, and they also had authority to to well, they could get away with taking more than what was due to them. Um, many of them uh, helped the Roman Empire tax people into poverty and destitution to the point where the empire will, could take over their land for not paying their taxes, um, where they could leave people poor and destitute, and again, in a system with no social welfare, that's an incredibly dangerous place to be. So I don't want to entirely defang the scandal that some people are really pissed off at Jesus for, for dining with people that are robbing them of their land, that have sent some people into slavery, that have sent some people into destitution. It's complicated. It's not simple. Yet Jesus is at something here. The tax collector's were victims of social exclusion, and sometimes in ways that are very understandable and sometimes ways that are not. The other sinners could be all kinds of people who have been cast out of community for a variety of reasons. Yet maybe Jesus is hinting that exclusion, while making us feel pure and in some ways keeping us safe from corruption, may rob us all of too much. What possibility for change, for transformation, for, each, for these things in each party, seeing the humanity of the other up close was there when these divisions were enforced. What, would, what don't we know about these stories, about these people? So we're going to really quickly read um, another story, which I reference with this marvelous um, icon. Um, I just love how people envisage that people would be up a tree. So this is Zacchaeus. <laughs> And I'm not sure if he's got snagged on a branch or what's happened, but it's quite remark. It's quite a remarkable. <laughs> Something's going on, and he is very small. He'd come to Jesus' hip, so they got that bit right. But yeah, it's great. This is Zacchaeus. Um, would anyone like to read Zacchaeus for us? Yes, cupcakes and Zacchaeus. It is a miracle. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. 
for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you. So, the way we read the story is that Jesus scandalously goes to the home of someone who was incredibly powerful but was not included. And people mumbled and groaned about Jesus hanging out with the wrong people, about not keeping pure. And in the story, Zacchaeus has this profound moment of inclusion and belonging and turns his life around and realizes in the face of goodness that he's got it all wrong and that this moment of receiving community wants to do what is just. Which is one angle on the story. I mean, it's like so Sunday school in terms of the kind of like formulaic nature of how things don't really happen in real life. <laughs> but that's fine. That's what the gospel writers are trying to do. But there's another possibility here. Um, this little extract from a, um, a, a commentary which does a great summary of another lens through which we might see this story. Um, I don't read Koine Greek. I'm not one of those scholars. I'm one of the people who believes that either you study a language, immerse yourself in it for a lifetime, and that becomes your main thing and you get really good at it, um, or you don't do it at all and you rely on other people. Um, half ass pastors who read a bit of Koine Greek and then say what the Greek actually means where they're not an expert in languages is a really dangerous thing. Um, and I've heard a lot of really bad sermons <laughs> because they had a strong concordance, and it's really stupid. Um, but anyway, this is uh, these are some scholars who I actually really like. A uh, <laughs> um, little commentary on this here. My habit is to give back. My habit is to pay back. Um, so as you'll notice in here, he says, um, here and now I, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. In the Greek, it's actually ambiguous. It can be translated two ways. They've made a translation decision because of the way they expect the narrative to go, but it could just as likely read this. It is my habit to give back. It is my habit to pay back. In Greek, the present tense verbs could be read either way. In fact, the whole episode could be taken as Jesus restoring to the community of God's people a person who had been excluded by that community on account of his vocation. Or it could be taken as a story of repentance on the behalf of Zacchaeus. It's interesting to think about that maybe the repentance that needed to happen was a community who had excluded this person because of their vocation, without actually getting to know what their practice was like, without actually seeing their humanity, without actually coming close enough to them to see that they actually were a person of justice. And so just because of an external perception they excluded this person in a way where that would have been absolutely excruciating to them. I made the mistake of accidentally, a habit I, this is a practice I never do, um, I accidentally looked at another church's website recently. Um, don't do it. Um, <laughs> just to see what they were talking about. Uh, 
And a lot of the sermons were, started with, um, were entitled things like, what the world needs is. Um, and I had trauma flashbacks to my childhood from where I grew up in a tradition that had a lot to say about the world and those people over there and the homosexuals and all of these things. And it would describe lifestyles and experiences that they knew nothing about. Nat's about to throw a shoe, so we've got to be very careful how long we linger on this point. Um, it's dangerous ground. And my knowledge of the church and my knowledge of the outside world, this, none of this stood up as being this simple in this binary of we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. And as if corrupt culture wasn't inside the church and goodness wasn't outside. And I think about these people who have the power to tell stories in these places who have been so institutionalized by their little circle that they can misrepresent entire swathes of the population because it suits their agenda and it makes me ill. And I think about the practice of eating and drinking with others who aren't like us and how transformative it can be not only to include other people in our world, but to be included in other people's and learn something new and perhaps treat people with less suspicion. Eating and drinking is dangerous. And it could be good dangerous too. Um, so that's enough of me. Tamsin's going to lead us in a little... Tamsin's not. Tamsin looks very surprised that Tamsin's going to lead us in a reflective practice. Are you going to lead us? You are. Oh, great. This is good. See? Smooth as silk. <laughs> We're a collaborative team that works seamlessly as if there's only one of us. Um, yeah, I was thinking about um, how, like, in sort of a traditional thing of, like, okay, now's the time for the application of, of this in our lives and how kind of, how can you go out and invite more people to your dinner, you know, your home for dinner is kind of one conclusion you could make of what do we all need to do to add people to do more in your busy lives to kind of include more. And I, this, um, this idea of kind of kenosis of... Um, this kind of emptying practice of this we um, can be interpreted as sacrifice, you know, that we go out and we should be sacrificing more. And, um, but it's really this idea of um, I, make, I make room for the transformation of someone else to come in. I'm, I'm making room for someone. Um, I'm not just sacrificing, you know, all my good deeds for someone else, which is a real power dynamic. But this model of um, I'm making room in hospitality and someone will fill that and we will both be changed in that process, um, I think is a, just an image that I keep getting stuck with, that it's never just the one directional giving. Um, this is an invitation into um, soft edges. There's a really nice um, word that you used before, Anika. Oh, oh, no, that was Heidi. Um, but just this softness, what is the invitation um, for you to be changed by someone else through your home, your table, through your your reading, your Facebook post, like what is this invitation to another um, and how will you be changed by that? Um, so this little practice, um, we have just been thinking about how can we move from here um, into our bodies and to kind of just honour and recognise there's a lot of people in the room and there's a lot going on in your lives. And where is... Um, 
the living breath or spirit of God moving in you um, and just that invitation to listen to it, to what is the living movement of, of the spirit of a loving and kind God for you today. Um, so there's kind of two aspects I just thought we're just going to have a minute of silence um, of listening um, and that might be uh, what is the invitation from God to you? Um, maybe you are the one in need of hospitality or in need of a remembrance of that radical invitation from the divine to you. Maybe that is what you need today rather than what are you invited to give of yourself, but what are you needed to receive from the living spirit of God? Um, and the second question might be um, what, to whom is the invitation, whom, whom uh, like the beyond you, whom is knocking on, you know, the spirit is calling you towards someone or towards people or towards voices or towards inclusion, um, who might that be? Um, who comes to mind? What comes to mind? Um, and so kind of like the hospitality to you and the hospitality from you, but not in a model of, come on, go and be more, you know, have a radical table at your home. Not in that sense, but where are you invited to make room in your spirit for someone else? Um, so what we'll do is just have a minute of silence um, and that might be where you reflect what is the invitation to you today and a response might be in the form of a small prayer back. Help me, you know, I received that invitation um, to being myself or help me remember this person um, who comes to mind um, and let them change me as much as I might change them. Um, that might be your prayer. So we'll just have a minute of... You might take it as a personal invitation. You might take it as an invitation out to others. Um, what is the invitation today? And a little prayer in response from you. All right, let's have a moment of quiet or playing with a yellow ball, whatever you want. <laughs> Loving God, thank you for enfolding us all into your family in weird and wonderful ways. Um, thank you that we continue the practice and the ritual and the discipline of inclusion and making space and making room as we have encountered that at your table. Amen. Speaking of tables and communion, um, Kind of in light of this, you know, this radical table idea, um, we have this this wonderful practice of communion each week, um, where we take these symbols of of Christ that we take on the mind of of Christ and take in ourselves this very sort of wisdom practice of we go from here having partaken in the movement and the the, the way and the being of Christ um, in our, ourselves and our daily. Um, choices and all that we do um, but it also is just this is an open table as a tiny little reflection of God's raucous and wonderful and controversial and strange and inclusive family feast that we keep coming towards that that's at the heart of our faith is this this big raucous messy but wonderfully inclusive and loving dinner table. <laughs> so we're going to keep that image um, as we take communion together. Um, in our community, you don't have to take communion 
um, you're welcome to stay seated. You're welcome to join us in a circle, which is our practice. We um, take a, a large circle. Otherwise, you're more than welcome to t take a small juice and a cracker and we'll come together in a big circle.